How do you do? The Box Office Pulp Board feels it would be a little unkind to present this podcast without just a word of friendly warning. We're about to unfold a cinematic commentary track, made by a group of men who sought to create a podcast after their own ravings, without reckoning upon God. It is one of the strangest tales ever told. It deals with three great mysteries of the internet, analysis, observation, and deconstruction. I think it will thrill you. It may shock you. It might even horrify you. So if any of you feel you'd not care to subject your nerves to such a strain, now's your chance to... Well, we've warned you. Now, to pause and refresh. For your convenience, we have an attractive refreshment stand in the lobby, with buttered popcorn, golden good and hot from the popper, your favorite candies, wholesome and rich, plus delicious Dr. Pepper, so bright and bracing with a tang and tingle unmatched by any other beverage. Enjoy an ice-cold Dr. Pepper at our beverage stand right now, and then return to fully appreciate this bop and a movie commentary track. Enjoy. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Box Office Pulp, your one-stop podcast for movies, madness, moxie, and tonight, murder mysteries. Mike, do you have like a, a sheet of tinfoil you can hit to make it sound like thunder? It's, uh, it's not on me. Damn, we should have planned this better. Anyways, folks, you probably haven't guessed it because we haven't given you the clues, but this bop in a movie is all about the 1985 cult comedy slash whodunit Clue. I'm your host, Cody, and uh, your butler for the evening, because someone has to be, I suppose. And with the wrench in the billiards room, we have Mike over on the side. I enjoy getting presents from strange men. Or, stretch it, maybe it wasn't Mike. Was it Jamie in the hall with the noose? I'm a red herring. No, those were actually all terrible guesses, because our murderer and returning special guest host is in the study with the handgun. He's a former uh, professional wrestler, turned author, speaker, producer, celebrity journalist, and film critic. With his book, When Jonathan Cried For Me, uh, he talked about how he overcame trauma, PSD, uh, PTSD, PSD, which, is that like a PS4 game, PSD? <laughs> right. I'm going to make up an acronym now and just say you've overcome it, because you probably have. <laughs> Joining us tonight is Carter Lee. Uh, if you're interested in him, you can find out more of his stuff on the Inquisitor and fan site uh, 1428 Elm. That's right, folks. We actually drew someone in twice on this show. I don't know how we did it, but we got a guest to return. Uh, I will not say we didn't bribe him, but here he is. Anyways, Carter, thank you so much for joining us again on the show. Hey, thank you. It's a, a true pleasure. I hope. Am I the first repeat guest? You are. Ah, uh-huh. oh, that's awesome. I'm. I'm truly flattered. This is a thrill. <laughs> you guys are the best. Like I, literally, like I can't tell you. I'm like a. a a kid before Christmas when I before I come on your show like the <laughs> night before I get so excited and I'm like oh that's gonna be so cool and like I nerd out like I, actually, I assumed I, it's just because we're talking Clue and it's like well, oh man who doesn't right wanna? right and the first one was Cabin in the Woods so it's definitely the material um I don't know why we can only bring you on on scene movies Right. Oh, crap. No, cool. now we're self-aware of that. We have to keep it going. <laughs> Carter and the C's. We can only do C movies next. That's funny. Just... Okay. Uh, cool. uh, what do we have left? Creature from the Black Lagoon? Uh, 
Uh, Catch Me If You Can. Mm, that's a good one. Um, Chicken Run. Cry Baby. Johnny yeah, Depp. Yeah, there we go. Yeah. Can we right, do we that our... next? Can we actually do that? Uh, <laughs> I've never actually seen Cry Baby. Oh. It has the best makeout scene in cinematic history. <laughs> Ever. Uh, so much erotic tub washing. <laughs> and how come no one's ever made me watch this before? I, I missed out on erotic tub washing. I think we just assumed you had seen every Johnny Depp film, like we all have. Ah, uh, that's that's true. I got a I got a little bit to make up on some of the early Depps. You uh, know what? The, Crimes the, of Grindelwald. You just <laughs> on that Johnny Depp train. Let's not go oh, down that train mind. again. Let's, uh... yeah, we've got a movie to watch, and we don't have time to complain about wizards. <laughs> Cody's motto. That's right, your that's, taking care of business. That's, that's my favorite bumper sticker. <laughs> <laughs> I promise I will hold my wizard comments down to a minimum. This is going to be about murderers. And the fifties. That's that's <laughs> my focus for today. Is the that time when the magic movie we're watching, or do you just have a true crime story to tell us? Uh, that's actually it. This is Clue, the Cody Elf story. It all starts when I was seven. I killed the Black Dahlia, <laughs> <laughs> and you'll never take me alive. <laughs> all right, folks. If you haven't joined us for a bop in a movie before, we're going to watch the movie Clue. We're going to give you a countdown if you want to watch with us. Cue up your DVD, hit the play button when we say to, and we're going to talk over the film, provide a commentary, and you can watch along with or not. I'm not your dad. You do what you want to do. <laughs> with that said, Mike, do you have the uh, timer all set for us? That I do. Fantastic. Do you want to count us down? No, but I will anyway. Good. One, two, three. Here we go. The old, old, old school Paramount logo. I kind of like the new one with all the swishing, swooping stuff they do, like before every Mission Impossible movie. But there's a charm to the old. I've, I've said this before with the new Paramount logo. The transform, the first Transformers movie, fucked it for me. I think thinking there needs to be transforming <laughs> sounds over the swooping stars every time it happens. Oh, they ruined it. Even in period uh. pieces. Especially like how the old places. Universal logo always has to have the Army of Darkness theme playing, or it's not right. <laughs> That's fair, yeah. I'm always disappointed when it doesn't do that. Uh, so, okay, just starting off the bat, can we talk about how amazing it is seeing these specific credits over mm. that background with this music? Just Tim McCurry. <laughs> I, I think the music in this is just not mentioned enough. Oh, not at all. Uh, you know, Mondo recently put it out on vinyl for the first time, and I'm so happy I have a, a, a copy of it. It's fantastic. That's awesome. Yeah. You know so, what I learned not long ago? Um, her name just popped up. Deborah Hill, the same yeah. co-writer of Halloween, produced this. Yeah, she was a mega producer in the 80s. And I didn't realize like how many other hits besides just Halloween she was really uh, responsible for. Yeah. Right. Is that why yeah, it's called it Hill House wrong... in this? It actually yeah. is, yeah. They named mm -hmm. it after just her. Accidentally kind of jokingly in reference. Yeah, yeah, I kind of... always thought that's what it was. I thought Landis was just being really twee. <laughs> yeah, no, it was all for Deborah Hill. Uh, if I can go back for a second, though, to talk about the music, because we're about to hit like a long silent period, so of course now's the time to talk about music. Uh, 
we've gotten John Morris doing the composition here. And I, I love this score because he hits such a wide variety of tones. He's got bits of comedy in here. He has bits of mystery, action. It really plays all over the place. There's a classic orchestra for most of it, but he also brings in a synthesizer to play a lot of the, the lead theme. And it's a wonderful time in the 80s because you could get away with that. It's, it's not like in the 90s where people realized, oh, we don't have to pay a whole orchestra. We can just have one guy on a computer synthesizing the whole score. And those scores kind of sound, well, they sound fake. Whereas this blends both. You get the whole orchestra body, you get the cellos, the, the flutes, the trumpets, the, the tubas. And you get that experimentation with the synthesizer. It adds kind of the wacky comedy tone. But they mix things because they'll also have like the cellos come in and play the synthesizer part a minute after the synthesizer plays it. It's a great mix, and I love what Morris did. Also, it really Morris, is stunning. Yeah, and Morris, it was funny, too, because I, I looked at his discography, and he, he did a bunch of movies for uh, Mel Brooks. So, of course, he does the comedy bits perfectly. He has so much experience. But wow. also, I know that. That's yeah, so well. He did, like, mm-hmm. History of the World Part 1, but he also worked with <laughs> Brooks for The Elephant Man. <laughs> like, Mel Brooks produced that one, so he came in, um, I'm assuming it was due to his relationship with Brooks, and, you know, provided that one is great dramatic score. So, yeah, of course he's able to nail every facet of the movie because, you know, he's got experience doing all of them. John Morris, a guy who doesn't really get brought up very much in uh, composition mentions, but definitely deserves it. Absolutely. Composition mentions don't get brought up enough. It's hard yeah. talking about music. I mean, I really respect music, but I know jack shit about it. So it's always like, I like the way that sounds. <laughs> what I say? Right. Couldn't tell you why, like but it's, it's pleasant on the ears. <laughs> Pretty much. Jamie, you mentioned this to me a while back, and it kind of blew my mind. This was all done on a set, except this for like my parts mind. of a home. How? Yeah, it was the ballroom was actually a mansion was used in um in California. Um, I'm forgetting what city now, but um, yeah, all of it was a set except for the ballroom, which only two characters stepped in. <laughs> but it's amazing. Look at this thing. It looks so lived in. It looks. So ornate, it really doesn't feel like a set at all. They did such a good job making this feel like a real house they just took over. It was redressed and reused for a show or something, wasn't it? Oh, Dynasty. Dynasty, yes. that's that. Yeah, and the, the house that was actually used for the ballroom and, like, the hallway or whatever um, was uh, destroyed in a massive fire. Uh. California fire in 2005. Oh, California and your fires. <laughs> Yeah, we can still that, like, say it was a mysterious that, like, fire, a though. <laughs> <laughs> uh, right. <laughs> oh, uh, I forgot to mention this earlier, but the drink for the night, it's a mystery because we didn't do in the open like we normally do, is the Minty Orchard. So to make one of these folks at home, you're going to need four ounces of Angry Orchard crisp apple, or honestly, any crisp apple, apple cider will do, uh, an ounce of vodka, a half ounce of creme de menthe, which comes in clear green. There is no difference in taste, uh, so whatever they have available. We're trying to make this a green cocktail in honor of Mr. Green, so you can either use the darker green, green creme de menthe, or the clear will work just fine. You'll get a nice light green. Uh, then you're going to need a quarter ounce of lemon juice and a mint to garnish. To make this sucker, all you're going to do is combine the vodka, creme de menthe, lemon juice in a mixing glass, shake for 30 seconds, strain into a rocks glass filled with ice, 
top with your uh, crisp apple cider, throw mint on top, and boom. There you go. It's minty, it's sweet, it's all you could ask for, and it's green, so it feels appropriate for the film because I was too lazy to look up anything more thematically rich. (laughs) (laughs) I call it the Cluedo. The Cluedo. I really wanted to make one that tasted like the mystery flavor you get with dum-dums when they're between matches, but I don't think that exists as a drink. Now, what would have been a really good deep cut was have it taste like monkey brains. Oh, damn. <laughs> There's a drink like that. You get like some uh, a Bailey's and you pour it into peach schnapps. And it kind of curdles inside the schnapps and makes like a weird brainy texture. You take it as a shot, though, and I don't feel like doing shots during a commentary. <laughs> oh, let's fucking talk about some glue. I'm here <laughs> what, one day you will, and it'll be glorious. <laughs> Save that for the next Inception commentary. Oh, uh, yeah, I forgot. <laughs> I should say, up until rewatching this uh, for the episode recently, I hadn't seen Clue from beginning to end since I was a teenager. Oh, wow. So it was a shocking reveal to me that this was written by John Landis. Oh, yeah. Even though it makes yeah. perfect sense. Oh, sure. He's another one that I feel like, yeah, I, I, you know, a lot of his movies are extreme in one direction or the other, right? Like you have Animal House or you have um, American Werewolf in, in London and and Paris. And I, I think that sometimes that fandom doesn't always cross over. So people like kind of associate his name with either of those types of movies where he did like a dozen of those in a span of just a few years and really isn't brought up enough, in my opinion. Yeah. The Landis thing surprised me because I never realized it either, but I, I watch Clue all the time. Uh, so I, I had to do more research on that. And there, there's a great article from a few years ago on BuzzFeed called The Crazy Story of How Clue Went from Forgotten Flop to Cult Triumph. And they, they just talked about the fact that Landis was approached by, I think, Deborah Hill and got super excited about the concept, even though it was a board game. And he, he just thought it'd be hilarious to do a murder mystery as a farce. So he jumped right in and worked on it for like years like he had a rough script in place before he realized he couldn't make it all work he he was the one who contacted like all the other writers to make it happen like he approached steven sondheim uh <laughs> he went enter- after anthony perkins uh, right tom stoppard he went after tom stoppard and stoppard apparently worked on it for like a year before giving up and saying he couldn't do it <laughs> <laughs> like he couldn't crack the story so he just he sent a check back he sent the check back like all the money they'd given him in a note saying he was sorry what an unbreakable knot Clue was, of all things. Well, he said the ending was just so difficult for him because Landis mandated it was it was a 100% thing. It had to have four different endings that were all radically different, but were all supported by the same movie. And no one could wrap their head around, well, how the hell do you do that? You know, all the clues had to point towards one ending, right? That's what I love about the endings we got in Clue is they could kind of be the endings to any murder mystery, really. (laughs) Like, if you're watching this movie with a magnifying glass, like, nothing that really happens makes, like, ends up mattering that much in the end. (laughs) Which is, I feel like, is kind of accidentally the fun of this movie. They, They do, um, 
not to be argumentative, but they do. Uh, How dare you? <laughs> they, they do drop a lot of tokens in this film that ties things together. Like, uh, I, I don't, you know, we don't have to go into all of them now. Obviously, we have a whole movie to go. But it, it's, you know, there's like, like the side characters that come in, like the motorists and all that. Like, they all have a connection to one of the characters. And there's even pieces in this movie that drops hints to that that are very subtle. So I think there's more there than meets the eye, so to speak. See what I did there? Uh, Paramount logo. (laughs) Yeah, I was reading about it. Apparently Tim Curry disappears for one scene because they had the fourth ending in mind where Tim Curry was going to be the one to personally murder all the people. So he needed to be gone for that scene. They dropped that ending. Uh, I'm not even sure if they filmed it or just didn't use it. They filmed it. But he's still, yeah, he's still gone from the movie for a little portion so if you're paying close attention to all the characters you can see sometimes folks disappear for a bit right yeah i believe he disappears during the first main thing with mr body and then he doesn't reappear until they go into comfort event i believe Mm -hmm. if if my nerdum doesn't fail (laughs) i like to pretend he's just pennywise so he's just ethereal And and yes, yes. And I also have this weird thing where he dances as a transvestite. <laughs> I just imagine. Keep expecting him. Right. That's in the extended cut. For some reason I'll play that one yeah. as often. What an amazing career Tim Curry has had, really. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. All this and menacing Kevin McAllister in New York. <laughs> right. <laughs> and Captain Hook. I, I, as long as we're talking about Tim Curry though. This probably is my favorite Tim Curry role, which might be a little bit of sacrilege because everyone loves him as Pennywise. I mean, he's got the Rocky Horror Picture Show. He's got a thousand movies, and his voice acting credits are also pretty iconic. But this, Wadsworth the Butler, I don't know if he can do mm-hmm. better than that. This is my favorite Tim Curry. Oh, he's so commanding. I, I completely agree. I, and I, I love Tim Curry. Clue's my favorite film for the record, like even above horror and stuff. Like, I don't think I've seen a single movie more than this one. Maybe the Goonies like is up there, but um, Tim Curry, I just thought was a flawless performance in this. And a lot of Tim Curry fans will hate me for this and it fans, but I didn't really like him as Pennywise personally. Uh, um, I wasn't a fan of that miniseries. You know, I didn't just way too much. And it's just, I don't like the TV movie feel of that story. I love the reboot or the actual cinematic film. Mm-hmm. But I thought this was definitely Tim Curry's strongest, aside maybe tied with his performance in Congo. That fucking masterpiece. <laughs> yeah, that was awesome. It's just amazing how Curry can sell pretty much any line. It does, the line isn't even memorable, but he makes it memorable. Uh, at the end, spoilers, when he is shot to death <laughs> in the real ending, damn fine shot it's such a throwaway <laughs> line but tim curry's saying it and the little inflection on his face just makes that classic right or like Most when he's actors couldn't do that they couldn't pull off that line in that way they would just say it oh absolutely absolutely and i think that's similar to his line where you know the the cop is searching the place and they're acting like they're having a, a party and Tim Curry doesn't know what's up. And the cop's like, this is America. Don't you know it's free? And he's like, I didn't know it was that free. <laughs> and it's it delivered just like the other line you brought up. Like, like great point. Like, delivered just, you know, one tone the wrong way or, or just a different person delivering it. And it, it's not memorable or funny at all. 
It's amazing how this is an ensemble movie and such an amazing ensemble movie where everyone is on fire, yet you still come away feeling like Tim Curry was the lead. It's like the one movie where he really mm-hmm. gets to be the leading man. He gets to yes. be a detective. <laughs> and yeah. think, Also the was, bad guy, depending on the ending. <laughs> yeah, and, and to think, yeah, he, it was he this close to being Rowan Atkinson. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. No shit. Christopher Lloyd just got caught in like a Seinfeld staring at the sun moment. Which is, <laughs> as Yvette walks by each person, it's amazing to see the reaction because they all look at the cleavage. Even Mr. Green, the supposedly gay guy, is like, mm-hmm. ah, quick pee. <laughs> and I, I don't know if you also um, found this in, in your – you might know more about this than I do, Cody. But according to um, VH1, uh, Jennifer, Jason Lee, Demi Moore, and Madonna were all considered for the role of Yvette. Right. But Jonathan Lynn admitted that although he was impressed with Camp's comedic acting skills, it was her will and doubt. It was her tits. It was like, yeah, no one can avoid looking at your fucking tits. He didn't say it like that, but that's what he meant. Like, like, I found the movie special effect that way. (laughs) But Demi Moore, I could actually see uh, for sure. And Madonna was all over the place in 85. So in more ways than one. Yeah, like we'll we'll see uh, uh, her comedic chops later. But it's like that was one of the things that uh, surprised me in rewatching this is I forgot how fucking funny Colleen Camp is in this movie. Right. Oh, everybody just does such a knockout job here, and it, boy, it would be so easy to make this not memorable. I mean, they are essentially trying to do a detec- detective show, and the banter is very rapid fire. It's it's kind of that outdated, almost Howard Hawks type thing, where you got to say everything as quick as you can without breaths in between. And it's very mm. easy for actors and actresses to make that just seem flat. Mm-hmm. But that's not the case here. Most of the crew, uh, I'm saying most because I'm looking at Mr. Body right now, and all of his lines sound like they're 80-yard. <laughs> but that's most incredible. of the cast here does an incredible job selling all the comedy the deadpan bar parts the the over the top the the quick exchanges of wit the freakouts, the improv it all comes out so naturally for sure absolutely and i recently had the pleasure of speaking with uh leslie ann warren mm-hmm. for her new film which is the grandson i'll plug that because it's worth seeing a good indie flick but of course me being a clue freak i took the interview so i could talk to her about clue. <laughs> and, and i told her straight up at the end right like okay you're in my favorite fucking movie so we got to talk about this and, and she was awesome I, I can't praise her enough but um she said and, and this made me so happy she said that they all loved each other uh so much on the set and and they were cracking each other up and like the director it was like hurting cats for them because when they weren't <laughs> doing takes like they were just cracking each other up where they said like she said a lot of the stuff that happened off camera was just side splitting much funnier than what happened on camera what happened on camera obviously is great and i could just imagine what they were like like the actors you know just getting uh, just just cutting it up with each other on set that just really makes me happy you know that, that there's a good story behind this film like there's not like a yeah. nightmare e true hollywood story or some shit like that yeah this, this is one of those movies where you really can say god just being on set and watching all of those people do what they do best must have been fucking incredible like to be a grip on that set right no kidding 
And, and I'm sure a lot of them didn't realize, obviously, what they were actually seeing at the time. You know, um, well, and they couldn't have for years when Clue came out. Boy, it, it what made? I have to look at my notes here. Fourteen point six million dollars off of a fifteen million dollar budget, mm-hmm. and the critics hated it. Like Ebert even thought it was trash. Mm-hmm. It took a long time for this movie to really build its audience up, and I, I guess it's mostly because of home video. The fact that you could get the endings mixed together, the fact that it played on TV near constant for a couple of years stretch really helped the movie out but yeah there's no way the cast could have known what they were in for at the time considering the reception the movie got mm-hmm. for sure no and things um yeah cable really helped a lot that's when i discovered it you know i was a kid Same. and yeah i think it was on hbo i still remember the whole hbo intro you know and then clue <laughs> would start and it was just like on repeat and i i loved it i can't remember like tnt i think might have also had it because i didn't have hbo but i remember it being Comedy on channel. all the time Comedy uh, Channel special. Uh, this still seems wrong to watch this without the little C in the corner. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> and also, I think that, I'm sorry. Is, is anyone else weirded out by Christopher Lloyd having brown hair? Yes. That's wrong, isn't it? <laughs> right. The Especially man's been a grandfather my entire life. I can't look at him as not being like 60. Brown <laughs> hair and highly sexual. <laughs> Right, it's right. it's weirding me out. I don't like it. Not frozen today. <laughs> yeah, it's like whenever they show young Rick on Rick and Morty, he has white hair because it would be wrong otherwise. And I feel like I'm against film colorization. They should decolorize Christopher Lloyd's hair in old movies. <laughs> I just he's one of those guys like Leslie Nielsen where I just thought he started acting at the age of sixty and was that way for. Forty years before he suddenly got really old. God, have you seen uh, Forbidden Planet? Leslie Nielsen is a sixty-year-old man as a twenty-five-year-old. That is, yes, it's a it's a head trip. It's like when you see old photos of your grandparents, and it's like, here's your grandmother and I during the Great Depression in our twenties, and they look like they're (laughs) eighty. This is sepia tone, Jamie. It it doesn't help. It's thirty years. Can we take a moment to appreciate Tim Curry just being all that's right in the world and taking these people to task? Can we take a moment to appreciate Mr. Body's shoes? What are, what's yeah. going oh on with this? I am yes. just always in love with those shoes. Right. Well, he came straight from the bowling alley. <laughs> he had people to blackmail. and I guess it's worth mentioning that, what's his name? Lee Venn, Mr. Yeah. Body? Yeah, Is yeah. That, yeah, the, the, the punk... What was his punk band? Uh, Fear. Yes, thank you. They're still going strong. Really? Well, I don't know how strong, but they're still going. I <laughs> still like can't believe that this guy was somebody. I always thought he was just like a stunt guy or a friend of the director. I thought he was Bill Pullman as a kid. Uh, <laughs> I did. I thought he was the same guy. Like I didn't even know Bill Pullman's name just as like a 10-year-old watching this. Or eight, whatever I was. I just remember thinking it was the same guy that starred in Spaceballs. Well, you have to trust the IMDb credits, but they claim he was only cast because his name is Lee V or Lee Ving. So Mr. Body will be leaving soon because he's the first to die. <laughs> I don't know if that's true, IMDb, but I like the idea of it. <laughs> this movie is so odd. A... <laughs> that's entirely possible. 
I found a story on VH1 was my friend today. It makes me sound smart. I never even knew they had a website until I Googled notes on Clue. I didn't know they were still There's around. A... I thought MTV yeah. ate them in the womb or something. Right. Well, they've been re- re- reduced to a website. So, <laughs> um, But they, they said that he was chosen because uh, someone kept requesting it. The studio kept requesting it because I guess the band had a hot hit single at the time. <laughs> and um, the director said that he kept telling them no so much he figured he should tell them yes at least once. So... We have his, you know, I, I always liked him. I mean, it's not really a standout role to begin with. It doesn't offend me that they got him. I like Bill it because Pullman's it stands out so odd because he feels like he's from the 80s. Yes. He, it's like he, he just does. came from battling John McClane, like right before right. he got to the house. Right. Or a straight cat video. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, you're saying he With doesn't those scream shoes. butler? <laughs> right, no. <laughs> Bottle. So l- let me just say, uh, Madeline Kahn as Mrs. White is my target gender. <laughs> <laughs> it's like when you s- – my my goal is to be this whenever I'm middle-aged, complete with the wardrobe. Synchronized leg cross to go with it against everyone else. Yeah, she's she is awesome. Also, the bouncing back of the so jokes much. that just the exchange of, okay, Madeline Kahn's going to be the straight man, then Wadsworth is going to pull the joke, but then Wadsworth's joke becomes the straight man line for Madeline Kahn to come back in and knock it out of the park. It's like <laughs> right. volleyball more so than normal setup. It's fantastic the back and forth volley you get with this. Mm. Typically, and, and this is something that I've noticed uh, off of Old Simpsons versus New Simpsons, is just the rapid fire pace of jokes in Old Simpsons. In 30 seconds, you used to get like 10 jokes. And you couldn't laugh until the end of that because something funny was happening every second. Whereas in a new Simpsons, they maybe have two or three solid jokes, but they're spread out over the 30 seconds. So you kind of chuckle. Next one happens, you chuckle. And it doesn't have the cumulative effect. And uh, that's me on a soapbox about the Simpsons. But boy, does Clue do a wonderful job of piling jokes on top of each other where you just can't stop but appreciate the crap that goes into a script like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this no, movie it, is just it, joke porn at a certain oh, point. Oh, it, it really is. It, it's so brilliant. I, I have a good group of friends where, you know, we've known each other like two decades, and quoting this with each other has never gotten old, like not once. Just like this movie has gotten old in, in over 30, you know, three decades. Like, it's just timeless. It, it's like um, the wit for a time it reminds me of the Dick Van Dyke show in many ways. Yeah. You know, that, that show's yeah. very witty and doesn't get enough credit. And this just reminds me of, uh, of that on steroids, just with the banter and, and, and great, um, great, it really is like a, a volleyball, you know, game yeah. that you're watching with one liners. It's just brilliant. Plus there's, there's always kind of the paradox of when you make a film, a period film, it has a tendency to make it feel timeless. Like if this were a contemporary film set in the eighties, it would permanently in my mind feel like, oh, that this film is 33 <laughs> years old. It's, it's so old. It's so dated. Why is that cell phone the size of a person's arm? Uh, but instead, it's, it's a film set in the 50s. And I don't know, for some reason, that mind, it makes it timeless that they're not trying to be current. They're just embracing the past. I, I've never quite understood how that works because it seems like it should be the opposite. By dating your film, you think it would be dated. Yeah. Mm. 
Also, God, Lex Luthor wishes he were as arch as Mr. Body. (laughs) (laughs) This is the most straight-up gangster shit I've ever seen. (laughs) It really is. Clue has always been a weird proposition in my mind because... Think of it. Let's say you're the first person to make a board game into a movie. How the hell do you approach that? The idea that John Landis came up to and went, of course, it's got to be a comedy, is brilliant. Because I would have looked at this and been like, um, well, the board game's about a murder mystery, so I guess it'll be kind of serious. And right. boy, watching this as a serious movie would just be such a drag. Like, all the weird conventions <laughs> they put into the game would just seem so melodramatic and mm-hmm. over the top. We'd but have battleships. Uh, yeah. But in, in a comedy, this makes perfect sense that they'd be given boxes with random weapons in it just because. Or all the other little jokes they throw in here to kind of ape the original material, as, as light as it is, work because they're not trying to play it too seriously. And I think most people would not have had the brains to go, oh, we'll just make this a parody. They get to essentially have their cake and eat it because they still get to do all the old mystery things they're based upon and the game was built upon. But they don't have to be limited to that. They can actually expand beyond the genre conventions that they're kind of built upon. God, this is fucking Sophie's choice, isn't it? (laughs) Be blackmailed or harm Tim Curry in his prime. No win scenario. I feel like a time traveler should pop in through a portal. No, he must be saved. (laughs) That's why when the lights go off, Mr. Body goes down. That's the actual fifth ending. Mm. scripted never used <laughs> right. I was always way too fascinated with Mr. Body's luggage <laughs> like I feel like it steals a scene when it comes into the room oh, God. his weirdly sparkly jacket he looks like fucking Peter Capaldi as the doctor <laughs> I love his one thing style. I want to point out here do you see the light switch there's an actual button they have to push instead of a flip switch <laughs> that, was, that was my college apartment uh <laughs> The place was so old, it had buttons like that you had to push <laughs> to turn the lights off or on. It, it's so weird seeing that in other movies, although our place was... Uh, actually, our place was built in 1903, so it's probably, I don't know, maybe the same age as the wow. house from Clue? I don't know. Someone actually what? bought that place, which is a shame, because they just bought a fire hazard. <laughs> I, feel, I feel terrible for them. <laughs> They bought a date with the right. Grim fucking Reaper. If they right. knew all the things that happened inside of that place, they would have been like, we are giving you $5, and that's the most you're getting. Right. God, I remember since I was a kid, I have been so fucking impressed with how they actually were able to write around the conventions of the game. Like... They somehow made a murder mystery where nobody knows what the hell the cause of death is or where the dude died. I think that shouldn't be possible in a story. It's really fucking brilliant. It really is. I mean, we, I, I believe this was the first board game made into a movie. Not that there's yeah. that many. You know, I, I, Battleship comes to mind, unfortunately. Yeah. But Ridley Scott for years was threatening us with the Monopoly movie. <laughs> That's right. Wow. That would... And then, and then instead, we just got real life. Ridley Scott can't be stopped, so that probably is coming five years down the road. He's going to give us like an Aliens, <laughs> another Alien movie. There's going to be like eight other weird projects, probably a musical just to mix things up, another Brad Pitt murder mystery, and then he'll get around to Monopoly. We're Ridley getting Scott fucking Gladiator 2. 
Russell Crowe's money bags would be fantastic. <laughs> Colleen Camp has the greatest bad French accent in movie history. Oh my <laughs> god. <laughs> that rat face she makes every time she's... <laughs> yeah. She's really representing uh, the French, I think, accurately and well in this movie. <laughs> I read that she actually like entered the audition dressed in an outfit similar to that. She was dressed as a French maid. And then she was cast. Go figure. <laughs> and cinema thanked her for that. <laughs> right. So Martin Mull gesticulating with a murder wrench is my favorite thing in the world. <laughs> Martin this commentary Mull. is going to be 90% us just giggling at jokes we've heard a hundred times. Pretty much. Is that yes. Funny? I tell you what, if you want to challenge, I watched this film with uh, Lorraine on Halloween, and she hadn't seen it in years. And I watched this film probably way too many times in a year. And it was so hard to watch it with her and not do the one-liners with them, which has to be the most annoying fucking thing in the world to someone, right? Like, if you don't know the one-liners and someone's just saying it, it's like, why can't I just hear the movie? So I just shut up. But if you want to challenge, watch this movie without saying just one. One time. It's very <laughs> difficult. Uh, this movie was made for an Alamo Draft House quote along. I, I think uh, they actually did one last month or back in September. Yes. I can't remember. They I do one able to make almost it, every year, one. actually. Yeah. Yeah, they do one in Houston often. I, I always seem to That's miss awesome. it. You know, people always tell me after the fact, like, oh, we thought we'd see you at the clue, you know, quote along. Like, motherfuckers, someone text me. It's always on like a Tuesday night over here. Yeah, I don't know. I I think they did the same for me. Like it was on a Tuesday or something. I just couldn't make it. <sighs> I think they actually need to shut the lights off in the theater and then murder someone to really just <laughs> drive it home. Speaking speaking of which, uh, to prepare for this, I started reading up about some of the best like movie theater gimmicks they used to to sell movies to people. I mean, Clue obviously had the three different endings they put in theaters. I love that idea. I wish more movies would do gimmicks like this. Like, hey, if you come to the Tuesday showing, you get ending one. If you come to the Wednesday showing, you get ending two. But just reading about some of the ones in the past that aren't just the William Castle gimmicks, because he did like a hundred of them. Some of them are pretty fun. Um, the movie Wait Until Dark, during the end of that movie, when all the lights are off in uh, the house at the end of the movie, where like Audrey Hepburn has to go after Alan Arkin and try and like surprise him. They dimmed all the lights in the theater one by one and then eventually turned off all the lights, even like the exit sign. <sighs> so the people were sitting in a pitch black theater as these killers are trying to murder Audrey Hepburn. Fantastic. That's, I mean, a huge fire hazard, but amazing. <laughs> I would love to be in that situation. Yeah, you could not do that in 2018. No, no. someone would probably die. Someone would like, try and go to the bathroom and yeah. like trip and break an ankle, and they'd never find the body. It's my favorite serious use of a gimmick, though. Like, I would love to be in a theater that pulled that off during that movie. Right. Oh, the amazing. Um, another one that I was reading about on Mental Floss was uh, John Waters released a movie in 82 called Polyester, uh, <laughs> along with a feature called Smellovision. <laughs> which yes. Everyone in the audience was given a scratch and sniff card, and when a number appeared on the screen, you would scratch off that number on your card and, and smell it. So you get things between pizza, uh, grass, shit, flowers. 
and apparently Waters did this because he was amused by the idea of audiences paying to literally smell shit. What I love is that in the 90s, one of the fucking Rugrats movies ripped that off and even like used the same logo on the scratch and sniff cards and Waters tried to sue them. <laughs> Could you imagine having to hear that court case of Waters v. Classic Supo? <laughs> so I, I wish more theaters would do that kind of stuff. Uh, multiple endings, that's always fantastic. Alternate cuts, depending on the theater, that's dope. Uh, if you want to put seatbelts in the front rows so people like can't be scared out of their seats, do it. I, I, it's kitschy, but I love that stuff. God, could you have imagined that with 1408? Like, half of the people see it go home feeling all right. The other half just feel sad. <laughs> you know, he's in that hotel room forever. <laughs> oh, Mr. Green. <laughs> Everyone just shits over Mr. Green the entire film, which is... Uh. I can't help but love the guy. Just they don't leave him a spot on the couch. Everyone looks mm-hmm. like he's once he says he's a homosexual, everyone treats him like he's the worst person in the room, even though everyone else are like war profiteers and blackmailers and murderers. Right. They won't help him hold a body. Everyone's like, nah, it's Mr. Green. That's I love it when he uh, does that reveal too, because at the end, talk about like subtle lines. <laughs> There's just this quiet thank you. <laughs> like he almost got an award for something. It was great. And he plays it so sly, too. There's a line earlier on where he's talking to Miss Peacock, and he leans in and says, I know who you are. And it's fantastic, because considering how timid he is throughout the rest of the movie, that's a really sly, bold way to say it. And it's true. If you watch like the actual ending, he's an agent. So he does know who she is ahead of time, and he's a plant, and he's the one who no one actually knows about. On a rewatch, that's just an extra great layer they toss in. And I think the best mysteries are set up that way. When you watch it a second or third time, you always find those new layers rather than say, well, I know the butler is the murderer. Why am I watching this again? There's nothing new to gleam. That's so true. Here's to you, Mr. Green. (sighs) I hope you're sleeping with your wife forever. (laughs) Everything McKean does makes me burst out laughing, even when he's just saying a normal line. Everything he gives <laughs> such a weird inflection to, so it's just funny no matter yes. what it is. Well, Absolutely. I didn't do it. <laughs> uh, it's like mm-hmm. the best nerdy white guy performance mm-hmm. in cinema since like Barry Bostwick and Rocky Horror. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. That's right, so a very specific style of white dude acting that I wish would make a comeback. <laughs> yeah, that's what we're really missing in cinema nowadays. It just occurred to me, he looks exactly like uh, Johnny at the start of Night of the Living Dead. He does! <laughs> right, yes. Like, you put some racing gloves on that guy and put him in black and white, and voila. Right. <laughs> That's crazy. This is ruined for, forever for me. You're welcome. So one thing I wanted to point out here, just as much as the actors <laughs> sell the comedy... And I mean, you got to have good actors for the comedy to work in the first place. But just just look at the editing and the cinematography. It's nothing flashy, but the way that all the reaction shots happen, you have to let those breathe for just a second so you catch that as a little bit. But if people are saying things in rapid pace, you've got to move quickly and you have to do it just right. You don't want to give them too much time before their line. You don't want to give too much time after the line. And in this film, the editing is 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 just 
spectacular. David Baratheon just times everything perfectly. And even the, the choice for some of the reaction shots, like when all the cast runs down the hallway after they decide they need to go somewhere, those jump cuts to the cast moving always make me laugh. It's such a simple thing, but visually it's it's brilliant. And I don't think uh, editing gets enough credit in comedies, especially <laughs> in modern ones where it's all built on improv. I mean, this is a movie that lives or dies by its script, I think. And the editing, the technical prowess behind this really emphasizes how good that script is. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. And if you ever want to have a lot of fun, every time you watch this, just pick a different character. Just follow oh, yeah. a different character. I think in the our, in our theme right. commentary, we talked about how we always are just watching a certain, like, Cody and I usually, like, watch Windows like whatever he's yes. doing in the background. Why is it Windows? Why it's always Windows. windows. <laughs> it's, I never get anything else out of the movie because it's Windows every goddamn time. A million miles of nowhere, man. Um, like just pick a different character in this and just watch them throughout the movie and just every single thing that happens. Right. There's a sub-movie going on for every single character. Tim Curry's physical reaction to everything that's in this movie is amazing. Just... <laughs> right there. That is how you do a goddamn pratfall. Damn right. Dead fall down, and before that, when he drops like uh, the cook, like she just slides through his arms, <laughs> he doesn't even come close to catching her. He sells all these things perfectly. The physical comedy there, along with his actual acting abilities, like his line readings, all of it's off the charts. Yeah, that's something I love so much about this movie is like we were talking earlier about how witty the dialogue is it's like this movie has every type of humor happening at once it's like arrested development in that way it's like there's like witty oscar wilde back and forth there's ridiculous physical comedy there's like an almost Victorian comedy of manners going on, and also the maid has a big rack and everyone keeps staring at it. It's like every type of <laughs> and joke at once. You're so the first right. joke in the movie is Wadsworth having shit on his shoes and then other people smelling it. <laughs> there's lowbrow, there's highbrow, you get a good mix. Oh yeah. Well, no, that's it, a, a brilliant observation. I mean, that's another reason I think it has such cross appeal, you know? Because um, just people of all ages love this film. You know, I loved it, and obviously as I got older, I caught on to jokes that went way above yeah. my head when I first saw it. <laughs> oh, yeah, this is the perfect like comedy for a 12-year-old. Like in the same way that mm-hmm. Mel Brooks comedies are perfect whenever you're that age, because it's got a little bit of everything. Oh, yeah. Dracula at Dead and Loving It is good for any. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. I will fight anyone that disagrees. Okay, this is my weird thing about this. As a kid, I always thought that was like goddamn Matthew Broderick or his brother. <laughs> For some reason, this guy's voice and his just his mannerisms always stuck out to me. Like I was too dumb to realize there's no real connection here at all. The guy's face doesn't even look that much like Matthew Broderick. <laughs> it's funny you like I never thought the voice matched the face. I always felt like it sounded like a weird dubbing or something. There's a couple it of really characters does. in this who sound yeah. very dubbed. Yeah. <laughs> I love how they become a weird team so quickly <laughs> in this movie. Well, the work like, that the cinematographer is doing 
to get everyone crammed into that frame around the door so you can see everyone's unique reactions. You know how hard mm-hmm. it is to get your family together for one photo? For <laughs> Imagine you have a cast and they all want to be seen mugging for the camera and you have to balance them out so no one's overwhelming things. Somehow, Victor Kemper does a good job getting everyone in place and lit so you can tell what each person's doing without being like there's a clear lead. It's such a juggling act and he nails it. And this, and this is a dynamic I wish more ensemble movies, especially ensemble comedies, would take on. Everyone's dynamic changes from scene to scene to scene. In one scene, they're all enemies. In the next scene, it's them against the world. In the next scene, it's them against Wadsworth. I mean, as long as we're talking about the characters... It's amazing we like them because all these people are terrible. Like they don't they don't try to disguise the fact that all these right. people are just bad. Except and for Mr. Green. Except for Mr. Yes. Green. Yeah, yeah, that's true. But yeah. all these characters and Mr. Body even really doesn't seem or not Mr. Body. Wadsworth doesn't seem that bad until the end when you find out he's actually secretly the bad guy. Uh but they do this great balance. Oh god, sorry. Mole's deadline there. Yep, everything's fine. Two more. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> right. God damn. That, that man's deadpan is just the deadest. It's so good. Mole's oh, tour de force. Uh, a- a- anyways. So, I just think it's neat are... that he reunited with Tim Curry on Roseanne. What? <laughs> yeah, at one point, both Tim Curry and Martin Mole both co-starred on Roseanne in the later years. Not like this new thing going on, which oh, yeah. uh, I can't speak I about because I've never seen it. But in the later years... Uh, towards the end of the season, probably the last couple of seasons. Um, yeah, both of them co-starred in this. I would love it if uh, Mo was just like New Dan in the last season. <laughs> <laughs> that would have been amazing. <laughs> Mo trying to scream like John Goodman would be incredible. <laughs> uh, but, ah, damn it, there's a point I was trying to make. I'm going to get there. Um, right. The fact that all these people are terrible, and yet we still kind of root and love each one for their different reasons, I think shows the brilliant thing going on here. These characters hate each other, too. So we don't feel like the onus is on us to treat them like shit. They're doing it to themselves. (laughs) And it's such a clever little dynamic to have in the script, but it just makes it so much easier for us to like them since they hate each other. If they were nice to each other, we'd be sitting down like, that motherfucker's a war profiteer. Everyone should be mad at him. He's a bad guy. Right. Everybody is just so imperceptibly dense that it becomes so endearing after a while. It's like an episode of Frasier where everyone's Niles. Oh, God, yeah. Don't get me started on Frasier. We'll never get back to clear. <laughs> I love that show. That's what that, that's the one thing this movie always it tends to remind me of. It's like this is Frasier if they had to solve a murder mystery for nothing. That, that's you know I never thought about that before, but you're so right. That, that's brilliant. It really is. This... <laughs> for, for once, my skill to make everything about Frasier has come in handy. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, there, I feel oh, like what about there's... my scrambled eggs? <laughs> All over your face, Cody. <laughs> not a glob. We're not getting into the spirit here. Not, not yeah, on the We've got better things to talk about than the spirit. Moving on. But uh, I feel like 
that as a criminally misserved subgenre of movies, stupid people solving a mystery. Like it's this in Pineapple Express. The nice guys. Right. That, that yeah. 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 Shane Black is keeping it alive. Yeah. The other guys. True. Oh God, yes. Yeah. I mostly love that movie for the opening five minutes. Where oh my God. Samuel Jackson and The Rock, spoilers, <laughs> jump to their deaths off a building in the it's opening like, of that movie. Just yeah, There wasn't even an awning, not even a shrub. <laughs> I, I will always appreciate that movie for fucking Bruce Wayne turning to the camera and saying, don't go chasing waterfalls. Like that line alone as a right. Adam well, McKay. He, he quoted uh, TLC all through it. You know, I don't yep. need no scrub yeah. guys. Yeah. Remember, when you go there later on, guys, creep. <laughs> <laughs> I, would, I would like to point out, we missed it, but Christopher Lloyd comparing the world's smallest matchstick to <laughs> Mr. Green's and seeing Mr. Green has a gigantic one and the frustrated look on his face when he knows he can't be with the event <laughs> is just one of my favorite little details. Just the, the yes. scowl on his face. Just, uh. <laughs> yes. And yeah. then the anger right after Miss Peacock. It's you and me, honey bunch. <laughs> the world needed more Christopher Lloyd. Cranky yes. Lloyd. Normally he's just wacky fun, having an okay time, or just flabbergasted. This one he's actually just really unhappy. Oh, Frozen Today Lloyd is the best Lloyd. Wow. <laughs> just think, we wouldn't see this much anger from Lloyd until he was Rasputin. Oh, God. I forgot about that one. Uh, Yeah. All right. And now we're going to get the running joke. For some reason, they decided to do like twice in a row of characters trying to go through things together. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know why they decided to do that back to back, but it was funny the first time. So let's write the next scene about the same thing. (laughs) I, I guess. Yeah. We'll, we'll get in a minute here, but it's just going to be several scenes of people trying to wedge themselves into narrow corridors together for no reason. It's like the hateful eight. Everyone is as obstructive as humanly possible at every single moment. <laughs> that is such a good line. It is. <laughs> it really is. Oh, this framing is oddly beautiful. It really is. There's this movie does not like. I mean, we mentioned it before. But God, this movie does not get enough credit for how beautifully staged every single shot is, and it's a clue movie. Oh yeah, and and on top of that, the quick changes in composition without cutting are also very well done. In the conversation scenes, let's say if someone hops up from the couch to interject and then sits back down, the camera will be right with them. It'll pan up, it'll pan down really quick, but not enough where it's a blur or it looks like some sort of whip cut or anything. It's it's purposeful and it moves around the way it should and it keeps everything in focus and framed nicely. Also, whoever did it, the uh, felting on that pool table should be ashamed of themselves. Look at that wrinkle <laughs> in the corner. Ooh. That is amateur hour. <laughs> C- Cody used to do this for a living. This is very triggering for him. <laughs> it's ridiculous. Come on. That guy did not put any effort into this at all. I, the movie's ruined. I have to go home. It is still my dream to one day own a pool cue designed by you, Cody. Uh, I never designed them. I just uh, engraved them. Just etched yourself onto them occasionally. I did, yeah. 
just for practice. <laughs> That's awesome. Yes. So we could like put photographs on pool cues and that kind of stuff. In a warehouse somewhere, there's a pool cue that has inscribed on the back, Cody giving a thumbs up. <laughs> I want this in my house so badly. I don't know what happened to that one. I don't know if they kept it or if they threw it away eventually. It was out of engraving room. Now, we, we just have to leave that as a challenge for our many, many fans. <laughs> somewhere out there in the world is this piece of bop history. It's like when Jack White put his first couple of albums inside chairs that he made and then sold to the public. <laughs> uh, apparently they found one of those not too long ago, so there's only like three left in the world or something. So, people at home, please tear apart your chairs right now, just in case they're upholstered by Jack White. I know what adventure we need to go on. <laughs> All right. Also, this was a little detail I had to look up because I never paid attention to it before. Several scenes ago, above a fireplace, there was an inscription, Nouveau Rich Oblique, which is a French expression or a reference to one, noblesse oblique, meaning people and nobility have an obligation to act accordingly. The joke here being it's the new rich who are being asked to act accordingly, which is very dry humor considering the new rich are also normally the crass ones. Not much of a joke. But I spent time looking this up, so everyone else has to know what I know. Thanks, Cody. Yeah. No, don't thank me. Thank movie details on Reddit. Do we think we get Reddit money now? Does Reddit make money? No. Mm. All oh, Reddit makes are Nazis, Cody. Oh. No. I backed the wrong horse. <laughs> This man has done a terrible job driving. That's all I know. <laughs> that is really <laughs> impressive. That is. Like, how I does mean, that even happen? I, I don't want to judge too harshly because I've seen people, like, just completely miss intersections when they turn and land on rocks that are used as decoration to kind of separate in and out <laughs> lanes. Mm. I've seen people just turn and do it without any bad things being in, like, the environment. So it it's... I can't judge the movie character for being a bad driver when in reality I know many. I don't is know. That, I feel like that's the only kind of car accident you can get into if you were getting your dick sucked and you hit a <laughs> witch's daughter. <laughs> I think that was a plot for one of the episodes of Titus. <laughs> All right. And paying attention to the background here, there's almost like a theremin noise. Like it's Scooby Doo music now that we've switched to. <laughs> we've gone past normal comedy and now we've gone into. Saturday morning cartoon mystery comedy. Oh, speaking of Cody. Yes. I found out this little tidbit for you. Ooh. The Is it about Matthew Broderick? No, the Telegram Girl. Yes. Oh, yeah. You know who that is? No. <laughs> One of the Hex Girls. What? <laughs> it's Dust. No way. Yep. I assume the Hex Girls were all like 20 years old. To this oh, day, still, still plays Dusk. That is That's fantastic. Awesome. Oh, this was all worth it now for that two seconds of comedy. <laughs> happy early birthday, buddy. <laughs> Thank you. That's no, I'm so happy. I'm better off for having known that fact. <laughs> Could you imagine, like, are those the two things she has on her resume? Because that's more impressive than, like, a long story career. I read that she was a rhythm guitarist of the Go-Go Girls. What an amazing career. Now I'm so curious. Can, can we have her on the show? She sounds awesome. <laughs> right. Uh, this is what I got, again, from VH1. 
So for now on, it should just be assumed if I say something about this movie is from either talking to Leslie and Warren, my own <laughs> observations growing up, or VH1. So this is another shout out to VH1 for existing on the internet. But they said that the singing telegram girl was played by Jane Whitlin, best known as the rhythm guitarist of the Go-Go's. Ah, okay. I didn't research it past that, but it would be interesting uh, someone Whitlin nerdier is... than I should. I'm on the Scooby-Doo Wikipedia right now, and Jane <laughs> was for sure uh, Dusk in in uh, the Hex Girls group for the Scooby-Doo movies. Oddly enough, though, Dusk is the drummer That's for awesome. the Hex Girls and a backup singer. Um, personality, out of the trio, Dusk is the fiercest of the group. She was threatened to break up with the rest of the Hex Girls, but ended up not being able to. Uh, there's a citation for this, too, so we can get there. They were concerned for her when she briefly disappeared, and a bat showed up. Also cited. Uh, she appeared in Scooby-Doo and the Witch's Ghost, Scooby-Doo, The Legend of the Vampire, and What's New Scooby-Doo, The Vampire Strikes Back, episode 205. Wow. So there, there's a little bit of history on Dusk from Scooby-Doo. <laughs> That's amazing. Uh, Jane Wydland is an American musician, singer-songwriter, uh, screen and voice actress, and she's best known as the rhythm guitarist of the all-female new wave band, The Go-Go's. Wow. She, she also played Joan of Arc in Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. Oh, yeah. That's the wow. other thing I found out. Oh, of course she did. That's amazing. Oh, I love this woman. And she yeah. She's Officer... secretly the star of this film now. Yeah. She was uh, Officer Trulia in 1986's Star Trek IV, The Voyage <laughs> Home. Can we just give her the biggest round of applause when she no shows shit. up for five seconds? <laughs> no shit. Yes. And going back to a previous scene, I, I want to mention this part of the scenes where they, where they were burning, you know, the mystery person was burning the evidence. That's where they kind of give us some to connect things. Like there's a photo of Colonel Mustard and a soldier, and the soldier was actually, um, uh, they were both dressed in a U.S. Army uniform, and the soldier was a motorist. And they also had a photo of Mr. Green with a briefcase and, and um, a couple other small connections there and, and just that fireplace scene. Yeah. It's all coming together, and yet I still will never remember what everyone actually did in the end. <laughs> right. Something about having three different endings in the frantic way Wadsworth runs through it just makes me forget all the details of the actual mystery. Right. I almost think that's the point. Oh, yeah. Also, we passed the line, but um, the lounge! <laughs> I just needed to say it. <laughs> That was Colleen Camp just doing a straight dialogue, the funniest thing in the world. Oh, my God. She's she's brilliant in this. And Leslie told me that um, she, you know, they designed her dress to make it look like it was always going to fall off, which I personally <laughs> appreciated during my masturbatory <laughs> teenage years. And um, there's a peek behind the curtain. But she... Um, she said that they made several different ones because, you know, it's so tight at the bottom that they actually had to make different ones for her to run it and then just <laughs> shoot it so you couldn't see the slit down the side or whatever. I thought that was kind of interesting to learn. Uh, like I think she had an action made out. <laughs> <laughs> right. God damn it, Mr. Green, you'll ruin everything. <laughs> <laughs> Both I never times they open the door, Christopher Lloyd will be in the background trying to peer over everyone else because he's the tallest one. <laughs> <laughs> I just noticed uh, Mr. Green just looks like the spirit. <laughs> the, the, the blue suit and the red tie and I can't unsee that. 
He go is. back to Super Johnny. Great. Just go back to Johnny. Also, 80s cop. <laughs> From, I believe, Washington, D.C., but this takes place in, like, New England or something. Uh, IMDb narrowed it down to, like, two states. I think it was Massachusetts or one of the other ones. <laughs> Somewhere out there. I don't know East Coast very well. He has a very far-reaching beat. <laughs> well, to be fair, he is here on a blackmail business, isn't he? He is. He's, he actually says on the phone that he's not on duty. All right. If we want to get super technical here, and we are because we're not going to stop talking. The film takes place in New England, finger quotes, as revealed in the opening scenes. Soon afterward, Miss Scarlet is picked up by Professor Plum and explains that she is on her way to Hill House, which is off Route 41. In real life New England, there is a Route 41 that spans the northwest section of Connecticut, continuing through the southwestern section of Massachusetts. So Hill House, story-wise, is located in either of those two New England states. Now, thank God we can drive over there and rescue them. That's it. We just have to get going in our time machine back to 1950-whatever, Connecticut, or possibly Massachusetts. They're small states, so we can cover them both quickly. <laughs> have you guys ever actually played Clue the game? Oh, God, yeah. Okay, I played it like a year ago for the first time. Wow. I, I've seen the movie hundreds of times, but I'd never played Clue until I was uh, a fully grown man at a holiday party. Wow. Yeah, I I um played the board game before I actually saw the movie. Uh, so you're one of the guys over there like, that's not how that mechanic works. The hallway connects <laughs> over here. Right. I don't think I picked up on that detail. <laughs> I, I was just happy to see a scary mansion movie that my parents would let me to see. Allow me Why to was see. Mrs. White split into two characters? That breaks continuity. This ruined my childhood. <laughs> Speaking of scary mansion movies, I didn't realize this till again, going through IMDb, uh, that there was kind of a mini renaissance for the old, dark, scary mansion movie between like the late mid-70s and the mid-80s. Uh, we had stuff, obviously there was Clue, but there was Haunted Honeymoon, there was Murder by Death, House of Long Shadows. I can't think of like mm. any we've gotten in the last few years. I, I guess like the last spooky mansion thing was uh, The Haunting of Hill House. On, on Netflix, but they're not that popular anymore. No one really does these. And after the 80s, I don't, so I true. can't think of pretty much any I saw. I guess there's just yeah. 50s nostalgia going crazy in the 80s. Mm. Well, that, a cycle. For sure. Like, now we're in, ironically, into the 80s nostalgia yeah. era. For sure, it works out to be about 30 years, I've noticed. It's like the strongest it really does. Connection. 80s right. nostalgia, and we're getting a Clue remake, so. Awful. Yeah, look at that. This... Ryan Reynolds is too busy to do Clue. He can't make it happen. <laughs> God, I, I hope that's... Yeah, I really don't want to see a remake. I, I think the only way to do it would be to make it scary and like previously said, like, how do you make this stuff, like, you know... Yeah, you'd have to get really creative how the weapons come into play. It almost become a movie that's not based on the Clue game at all. So what's yeah. the point? But to redo it as a comedy, I think, would be a mistake because you're not going to do better than this. <laughs> the last I, thing I, I heard, it was going to be like a world-spanning adventure movie, which <laughs> sounds terrible. Oh, Jesus. Uh, we should get away from that because that's just sad and terrible. And we're missing one of the best set so pieces bad. in the movie. <laughs> As a kid, I never understood the song that was in the background. For some reason, I misheard it as Life Would Be a Dream Without You. 
And I assumed it was a comedy piece written to fit the movie because it'd be much better to see people making out with corpses to a song that basically talks about how much you hate your partner. Uh, only recently did I realize this was actually a sincere, real period song about life would be a dream with your lover. Mm. Changed everything. <laughs> Meanwhile, I'll always have uh, dreary connotations with that song because of Fallout. Oh. Interesting. Was it in the trailer or something? I, I know nothing about Fallout. Uh, that was, I believe it's the first game, Mike, that opened with that, right? Yep. Just that and then Nuclear Annihilation. Wasn't there oh. some Ron Froman in there somewhere? Always. Oh, yeah. War never changes, Cody. <laughs> <laughs> so, returning to the remake thing for just a second, I just want to say there's one thing like, one way I think you can actually do this, it's extremely specific, but I would kill to see the Coen Brothers remake mm. Clue with an all-Coen Brothers cast. Oh, there you go. George Clooney is a lovable idiot who also murders. Oh, yeah. George Clooney is Wadsworth. Mm-hmm. Brad Pitt as the first person to be accidentally murdered. Oh, he's... Also a lovable idiot. <laughs> no, yes. he'd be Mr. Body. Uh, he would just be a body. <laughs> imagine just Steve Buscemi fumbling around with John Goodman <laughs> like, this is already half a Coen Brothers oh, movie I'm, already so and I'm, I'm sold. sold right I'm totally <laughs> sold that's a great idea I, absolutely it, the last few things they've done have had a lot of musical elements I want them to buckle down and just do a goddamn full on 100% 1950s musical for their next project there is a Clue musical that's been made so Maybe that's what they're gonna do. Really? There's a Clue musical. There, everything is a clue, is a musical now, dude. I shouldn't be surprised. I mean, I know they did like the Adams Family as a musical, which is strange because they could just do it on the movie. But whatever. I'm pretty sure it's a Roadhouse musical. I think there there's is. a Warhorse musical. Wow. Warhorse was a play at the very least. I know they put a lot of effort into making that horse a thing, but oh. I, I think it was a musical. I could be wrong. They put a lot of stuck and tree in that horse. <laughs> There's like nine puppeteers around and stuff. It's it's a lot of work. I feel like this is the uh, same place Bastion read that book in the Neverending Story. <laughs> He's off to the side. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> the deer head from Evil Dead. Yeah, it's all connected. Mm. Right. It's a shared universe. I love how the killer keeps murder gloves on them at all times. Oh, it's like a giallo. Right. 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 Every time you see those yeah. hands, it's Argento. <laughs> Look out, it's the bird with the crystal plumage. One thing, we've passed it now by like five minutes, but I still want to point it out because it's in my head is hilarious. We mentioned before when the cop is explaining to Wadsworth that it's America and a free country. Even better, in my mind, in the background is the reaction of Mr. Green trying to tell Mr. Body that, uh, uh, Wadsworth, that it's all okay. <laughs> like he's panicking and he can't use words. Just, he's just doing contortions with his face because he doesn't know what Wadsworth is going to say. But he's yes. trying to let him know everything's fine, and he's not reacting right. And it's just two jokes happening at the same time, and you you can either laugh at one or the other, but paying attention to both will make you go cross-eyed. <laughs> I 
Also, that little bit where the thumping of the police officer is played out by the bell ringing. Hey! hey! Yes, <laughs> joke in the movie! <laughs> <laughs> I have to, I'm always disappointed that there's an explanation for her being there. I know. I always want it to just be a random scene telegram girl caught in the crossfire. It's also, so also, violent and sad. It is, but the fact that the best joke in the movie is followed up by probably my second favorite joke in the movie... <laughs> of just this stupid joke of Wadsworth walking into a shower and turning it on. And just my the favorite... setup for it. It's so ham-fisted, just, oh, there's a knob here! Oh. My favorite part you can't is, even in, laugh in, at in one of the properly. endings, that's his shower. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. God, I, the shower in the house I, I live in now has one of those fucking mono handles, and I uh, think about that all the time. <laughs> But those are two of my favorite jokes in the movie, and they're like within 10 seconds of each other, which is fantastic because they form into one mega joke. I, I love it so much. And just everyone's deadpan reaction when they come in, like, oh, another one's dead. <laughs> right. They're just like, defeated <laughs> at this point. <laughs> A lot of comedy, especially modern comedy, they tend to start off very strong with comedy, and then they will not evolve, but they'll change into maybe more of an action story or a mystery or something else. Uh, I'm thinking something like Game Night, which is actually a comedy mm. I really love. But that sort of primarily is a comedy and then transitioned more into almost an action film by the end. Clue maintains a goddamn furious pace of comedy <laughs> throughout the entire thing that I have to admire. And it builds like the third act of Clue is one of the funniest third acts in movie history. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. I agree. Comedy Completely. is such an arc. I feel a lot of the comedies will kind of blow their wad. They have a great joke, and they want to get it out of the way to start. And Clue somehow manages to stretch theirs all the way through the movie. Mm -hmm. that, the best comedies do that, I think. Ghostbusters is another great example. The Stay Puft Marshmallow Man is probably just the best <laughs> comedy you could have in the film. Absolutely. Mike and I were just discussing, like, apropos of nothing, a couple of weeks ago... What a what a perfect moment in cinema! Ray reacting to the state of Marshmallow Man is. Oh no! He would never hurt you. <laughs> state of Marshmallow Man. The marshmallow is a Campoconda. <laughs> One that thing that can never hurt us. Ray. Ray, what did you do? <laughs> <laughs> just the pause oh god <laughs> and just here the stupid comedy score that cues in really makes it too I mean Wadsworth's reaction to everything is great but just all of a sudden that upbeat you know, there's bodies everywhere but just the doo -doo 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 -doo, just underneath everything just works so well for me it so somehow manages fun. It does. It makes this a fun thing instead of a dour. Oh, there's corpses everywhere. Can Downey do this at the end of the next Sherlock Holmes movie? Oh God, I'd be so happy. Can you imagine if that's the end of Sherlock Holmes film instead of like shadow boxing in in mine palaces? It was. It's Robert Downey Jr. just rampantly running up and down castle steps. <laughs> but it's current Downey, so it's just his floating head CGI'd over a young man's body. Uh, 
<laughs> I'm just amazed they get away with just telling you the movie you just saw. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Several right. times. And it's like the, the greatest part of the whole film. Like, and no other movie would this work. That's a great point. One thing that really kind of fascinates me is the fact that because this became popular on television where the endings were combined, at least in my mind, the official ending is the one they mark as the official ending mm-hmm. in the home release yeah. edition where they do the first one, the second one, and then they reveal Wadsworth was the killer. Mm-hmm. Which, when they, they tell say, us, they say, and this is how it really happened. Yeah, but in theaters, you never got it that way. Mm-mm. So it only became in in the theater going mind official because they put it out on DVD and they just said, no, this is the one we like the most. Mm-hmm. Honestly, I don't even think that one fits the movie the best because Wadsworth is explaining all the murders and then suddenly turns and says, no, it was me. Gotcha. <laughs> right. <laughs> like it, it works the least, but it's the one that's official now because some guy at a studio said, no, nah, that's how it should be. It's kind of like, um, God, this Tom Cruise movie. I can't even remember the title. Because they changed it when it came to DVD. It's either Live, Die, Repeat, or Edge of Tomorrow. I don't remember what the official one is because they changed it between theaters and DVD. Oh, it's both Mm. now. Live, Die, Repeat, Edge of Tomorrow. (laughs) (laughs) And it's fascinating how that stuff can be controlled and changed after our initial perception. I mean, just, oh, the reception of Clue in general when this came out was, was, uh, was a massacre. This movie was a flop and terrible. But now, I mean, it's got a cult following. People respect Clue. To a certain degree. I think a lot of people are, they say they like Clue, but they almost say it in a way like they're not supposed to, which is weird to me. Hmm. Like pro wrestling. I missed that. Maybe like that. People, people talk <laughs> right. about Clue like, oh, it's good. I'll watch if it's on TV. But they never admit to saying, oh, I think it's a great film or I think it's an amazing mm-hmm. comedy or a good murder mystery. No, I agree. When I tell people this is my favorite movie that, they, you know, like, that I've just met or whatever, a lot of times they're like, really? That surprises me. And yeah. I'm always shocked that they're surprised. Like, why can't that be someone's favorite movie? It's yeah, a brilliant it, movie. It's the redhead stepchild approach, which is strange because the more I watch it, the more I love it. It's mm-hmm. there's so many good little beats going on. It's a wonderful comedy. It's it's endlessly watchable. You could watch this a hundred times and not get sick of it. Oh my god, absolutely. Oh, yeah. I think there's not too many films that can do that. You know. Yeah. Well, it's the curse of a comedy. You see it enough times, eventually the jokes stop being funny because you know when they're happening and how they work. Clue, it's it's half performance-based. You can't get sick of it because you're watching and being impressed by the physical comedy these people are putting through. Mm-hmm. Just giggle all out. Yeah, I rewatched also, this seeing the other day. Is always... <laughs> <laughs> I rewatched this like three days ago, and I'm still enjoying this as though I haven't seen it in years. Right. I watched Absolutely. this last night. I actually night have to ignore the currently. subtitles or I get lost. <laughs> there are some scenes in there. Like, I know a favorite bit's coming up. I'm like, okay, hopefully someone else will talk so I can just pay attention to this. <laughs> so is there, um, does anyone know if there's any truth to uh, the whole thing that um, Carrie Fisher was going to be Scarlet initially? I've seen that all I've over the internet. a lot, yeah. Uh, so if repetition is truth, definitely oh. a thing that happened. Um, <laughs> I believe Len said so in like uh, like 2014 or something. Okay, that's yeah. pretty. Yeah, rad. that was at a, yeah. like a screening or something. Yeah, I, I should have you know talked was, to one of the. I, I think the deal was it was never confirmed because she checked herself into rehab at the time. Mm-hmm. 
So she wasn't able to do the film, and then that wasn't something everyone wanted to publicize. Oh, she turned it down because of drugs. So it, it just kind of got paved over, and it never became an official part of the canon of the film. Hmm. I'm really amazed of all the films that have gotten special editions from, like, Shout Factory and stuff, that Clue is not one of them. Yeah. I feel like they need to get on that now. I mean, Christopher Lloyd's not getting any younger. <laughs> right. oh, I would love to see this movie in crisp HD on a Blu-ray. I mean, oh, it's my. on Blu-ray. You can get it on Blu-ray, but the special features on there are you can watch the ending separately. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> so it's the exact same as my digital copy. Yeah. <laughs> God, you can't bring Landis out for a com- for a commentary. That motherfucker likes to talk. Seriously. He loves to talk. He would, I mean, hell... Half of that article I mentioned before on BuzzFeed is just Landis talking about his experience and about how much he was excited about that movie. <laughs> he didn't even direct it. <laughs> it will always amuse me that this isn't a John Landis movie because he had to go direct Spies Like Us. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, his like fingerprints are kind of it. all over it. Yeah. I mean, just, I think he did a lot of work on this throughout the years. He helped write the first draft of the story. He helped kind of shape it. Even though, I, I'm assuming, I think he was a producer on the whole thing anyways. Yeah. I, it's not as bad as like a poltergeist, <laughs> Steven Spielberg, Toby Hooper type deal, but I, I think he had a lot of influence on the, the finished product. He must have. It feels like it has his DNA and fingerprints all over it. Especially with yeah. just, it has a tone that only exists within this film, which is a very Landis thing. Well, and I, I don't want to take away from Jonathan Lynn, because it's... Boy, it's got to be hard to step in from someone like John Landis, who was in like the height of his career then. And you've only directed TV. No, at that point, yeah. But I mean, Jonathan Lynn also gave us uh, what else? He gave us uh, My Cousin Vinny. Yep. And like the Fighting Temptations. He didn't have like a Mm. ton of movies in his in his filmography, but but they were hits. Yeah, the stuff he Sergeant Bilko. I'm looking at his thing now. I will go to bat for the Sergeant Bilko movie. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, gives the whole nine yards in, in 2000. Like, he's done a lot of fun, interesting things. Surprisingly, Wild Target, which I forgot existed in 2010. That's where Rupert Grint went after uh, the Harry Potter series. That's where he remains. <laughs> I'll finish that movie one of these days. But anyways, yeah, I don't want to take away from Lynn. Because, I mean, I, there's a lot of fingerprints here from Landis, of course. But he mm. was the director. He's the one who pulled all this stuff together. And to take For a sure. board game and make something oh. good, if not amazing, out of it, boy, that's just oh. phenomenal. I, no, I, I, can, I People can't even take a video game and make a decent movie out of it. And the dialogue and story and, and the whole what happens is right in front of you visually. This guy took a board game concept and, and turned it into one of the greatest comedies. And it's a... It's, it's a pretty oh, fun yeah. mystery to watch. You know, it works on multiple levels. Apparently, I'm looking back movie. at that article now. Apparently, Lynn tried to get Rowan Atkinson at some point to be uh, uh, Wadsworth, and then he turned it down. We almost had Mr. Bean as Wadsworth. The uh, studio wow. didn't, didn't like uh, Atkinson because he was too unknown here. Yeah. Which, I mean, in America, that's probably always been the case. I don't know if he was ever, you know, a huge smash in any ways. What, what was the biggest thing he ever did in America? Rat Race? The Mr. Yeah. Bean movie. Yeah. 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 Rat Race. 
Yeah, that's one you haven't thought about in a few years, right? Yeah, like, but then I, I automatically think of like three things from that film, that, like off the, you know, that just like right away that made me laugh out loud. That's I liked that one. Yeah, that one kind of gets ignored. As a kid, I absolutely loved it. I haven't seen it in years, but it's a running joke in my family. Like if we missed a direction or something, we have to say we should have bought a squirrel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a, right. And John Cleese, and and I read that John Cleese was actually thought about for being Wadsworth in this. <laughs> That'd been an interesting choice too. Right, I guess it was just so after dry. any distinguished British person. <laughs> right. No, I could see Cleese running down those hallways. <laughs> right. Okay, here's where I want to say this. This is where I disagree with you, Cody, on the uh, final ending not making a whole lot of sense. Get out of my shit. I love how arch that makes Wadsworth like he has pulled off the most complicated series of murders <laughs> in the history of murder right. and he's going to tell all of these people about it because he wants to, them to know how awesome he is just wants to rub it in a little bit right. once again Mr. Body both versions is the, the most arch movie villain of all time there you go I mean there, there's a lot of parts of this movie I think are a little silly like right there the fbi agent checking in on them is yeah. is kind of a weird little touch like at the end you go oh of course he was actually the fbi there to see what was happening but he doesn't doesn't need to be there like he just looks it, in it, and it then doesn't about even some good comedy courses. though yeah you know, that, that's where like miss carly like you know again like um you pointed out at the beginning of this there's just so many on paper, you know, lines that aren't funny, but they make it funny. Like he says, your souls are in danger. And Miss Carla's <laughs> response is you ain't just whistling Dixie. And the way Warren delivers it, just it, it's hilarious to me every time. And, and it's such a simple line, but. Or Miss Peacock's freak out. Our lives are in danger. <laughs> yeah, also yeah, her exactly. headdress, the Peacock, peacock <laughs> headdress thing she's wearing. It's, it's just... never not amusing. No, it's, it's amazing. So I can I can look past even if I don't think the Wadsworth ending makes perfect sense, it's funny enough where I don't care. Like it's whatever you get some 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 goodwill out of me, you can play it however you want. It's okay. I got it. I never really thought about it until I saw it pointed out uh, by another person who was discussing the. Uh, just the negative critical reaction and how this movie didn't really catch on with audiences partially because of the, uh, the ending trick. If you take out the other two endings and just leave one, this is a really short movie. Right. Oh, I bet. I mean, you don't have the escalation either. Like the multiple endings are the third act of the movie. Yeah. I mean, what this movie by itself is, uh, I'm, I'm drawing a blank here. 88 minutes, something like that. I'm yeah, looking it up. You... Oh, it's an hour 34 with credits. So wow. by the time you take off like five minutes for that, you know you're right at an hour and a half. Each ending is probably a couple of minutes, five minutes maybe. Mm-hmm. You've got yeah, it's a short film. That's like maybe an hour 20 without them. I think that's one of the things that makes it so rewatchable. I mean, obviously the brilliant content, but if this was some two and a half hour ordeal. I probably wouldn't have seen it 250 times, you know? Yeah. I mean, I love The Godfather, but I can count on one hand how many times I've seen it Mm because, you know, I've got shit to do. Not really. 
but I just don't <laughs> want to do that for three hours. Sometimes it works in comedy. Like, I'm thinking Wayne's World, same thing. I'm okay mm-hmm. with them doing, like, the multiple endings for that one. I think that's right. a little bit longer to be on top. I believe so. Also, all, now all I can imagine is Kenneth Branagh's Clue. And I'm mesmerized <laughs> my own imagination the right majesty. now. Majesty! <laughs> well, communism was just a red herring. And probably the greatest butler who has ever lived. Which is, not to shit on Kenneth Branagh, because I really actually enjoyed his... Uh, I wouldn't say remake because it's based off the book, but his his version of the Morty murder, 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 <laughs> murder on the Orient Express. Mm. That was a lot of fun. I wouldn't say it's a cinema mm-hmm. classic, but I had a good time with that one. And you don't get enough period costume pieces anymore, so I was I was perfectly fine throwing money at the screen. Absolutely, I, I completely agree. Um, I guess there was a debate over a character's mustache in that movie, and I'm <laughs> proud to say I don't nerd off that much on Agatha Christie, so I don't know. I just thought it was a good movie. Hercule Perot's uh, gigantic award-winning mustache? I think she would have uh, been proud. I think in the book they describe it as a little mustache, but do you really want to see Kenneth Branagh with a Hitler? I don't think so. Right, right. Some things just don't stand the test of time. Uh, let him have the full-on... I want him to have it bigger next time, like one of those award-winning ones where a guy is made to look like a windmill. And <laughs> right. Windmill on the side. Full Whisker Wars. Yes. Oh, God, we're up to the count. Yes. One plus two plus one plus one. So good. Uh, yeah, that's another thing where it's like I couldn't imagine watching this movie with one ending. Each of the endings has their own signature funniest mm-hmm. fucking thing you've ever seen. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I mean, the Wadsworth one, I think, has the most memorable lines. I'm going to sleep with my wife. Mm-hmm. Damn good shot. Right. Uh, flames. <laughs> flames. Yeah. yeah, that flame scene was totally um, ad-libbed, which yeah. just made me love Madeline even more. Like a, apparently, it was like four. they did it like four <laughs> times, and they said it kept getting funnier each time they tried it. And That's I can't awesome. remember who in the cast said they, they were watching this and they were surprised they didn't just cut all four of them together because they said <laughs> there was a ton of reaction shots of the actors and actresses just going, what the fuck? <laughs> they had no idea what she was doing. She just suddenly awesome. just rolled out this insane diatribe. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we, I really wish we could just get the outtakes of this. Right? Another oh reason I would love a special collector's edition of Clue. No I don't know kidding. if those exist anywhere. I mean, it's from the 80s. It's been 33 years. Right. It, who knows? Maybe it's like a Event Horizon where they lost in some sort of Russian salt <laughs> mine. But, boy, I would pay good money to get to see all that stuff in one place. We passed it, but Tim Curry turning to camera dramatically and asking where the chief is. Might be my favorite moment in all of cinema history. <laughs> just imagine if they did this movie with a current cast. I'm just trying to think mm. like the worst people I could put in here. Oh, Jason God. Statham is Mr. Green. I'm going to throw that out now. Right. Keanu Reeves has to be somebody if we're talking Wadsworth. Worse. Keanu Reeves is Wadsworth. <laughs> I love Keanu Reeves. I think he's amazing in action films. and he, he Oh, sure. Sure. Great talents. Mm. But I think... Some of the comedy bits they would have him doing would not be in his range. Mm-mm. 
No, no. And I, I'm not hating on him. And I, and I understand he's a great person, does a lot for charity. I just happen to not like 80% of his movies. <laughs> but who cares? I'm some fat white dude in Texas that smokes a lot of weed and writes about shit. <laughs> I mean, my, my opinion really doesn't, you know, should have really I have really to be nice to him in case he's just throwing money into the mail. Like, Keanu Reeves, my mailing right. address, if you're looking for a sycophant, is... Oh, sure. Absolutely. And if you want to take my book to the next level... <laughs> Seriously though, John Wick one and two, fantastic movies. Oh yeah, for sure, absolutely. And I, I also like Devil's Advocate a whole lot. Oh god, I forgot about that one. Yeah. I mean, ah, uh, Miss Peacock, we should have known. <laughs> god, could you imagine going to see this movie in its original run, and this is the ending you get? Right. Not that it's not hilarious. It's just this is so. Short yeah. and anticlimactic. Right, it's anticlimactic compared to all the rest, for sure. Funny she kept the version where she's violently gunned down and killed. <laughs> I had in in high school a German teacher who was talking about Clue, and he was one of the people who saw it in theaters, which apparently was not a huge number of people. And he was one of the guys who was annoyed by the multiple endings, because he got it, saw it, and then found out later there were multiple endings depending on the theater you went to. And he said he was very upset because he didn't know which one was the real ending, so he couldn't be happy with his experience, and out of spite, he refused to go again. (laughs) (laughs) Which I guess is pretty much the general attitude people had towards the movie at the time. Which is crazy, people. Go just embrace the gimmick. Right. If someone offers you, like, Percepto or... Any of those things. If someone puts electric shocks in your theater seat, mm-hmm. if someone's going to spray hurricane winds and water onto you, do it. Go right. to those movies. Absolutely. Meet it on its terms and you'll have a really good time. More movies need skeletons hidden in boxes until the third act that just fly over the crowd. <laughs> yeah. that, that was, that's what was missing from Hereditary. Oh, God. Can oh, you imagine God. that movie if there's just a headless right. woman who just gets dragged right. across the theater? Yes, or, or just a creepy, deformed kid. That comes out and walks down the aisle. I'd take it all. Hereditary. That'd be great. Now, going back. Thinking, uh, sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, I was just thinking, the, no, we have to do it old school. Just a skeleton drops from the ceiling. And goes, <laughs> I would love that. Oh, my God. I would geek out on that hard. Oh, going back a scene. I would watch it once and then drag like a girlfriend with me to be like, hey, check out what we're watching. Ha ha. Gotcha. <laughs> gotcha. Right. Right. Yeah, I, I definitely. um there's one person in particular in my life that would probably scare the crap out of. <laughs> and then you would sleep on the couch. Right. Well, I, I would just like to stay engaged. That's all. <laughs> life goals. Stay engaged to the person you love and don't scare the shit out of them. Yeah. You know, my I mentioned previous... something in the past, but Mr. Green just got smacked by two people. And I just, he even did. in that ending, he just gets disrespected <laughs> by everyone, even the he good does. guys. But he comes out like the king on top, and he's the only one. That no one has anything on, which is why you can confidently, through the whole film, say, I didn't do it. Exactly. You Finally, know? real ending. He's not, he's not <laughs> right. going to look. And everyone else has an informant. Like, the cook is, informs on Miss Peacock, the motorist informs on Colonel Mustard, and so on. But no one informs on Mr. Green. So, you know, he's actually giving us spoilers that he didn't do it throughout the whole movie. And to be a gigantic fucking nerd about it. Mm. This ending is the only one where we get who the murderer is, where they killed them, and with what weapon, dramatically stated, like at the end of a game of... <laughs> yeah. yeah. Right. That's Comes why it's the real the game. 
that's probably their mentality for that decision, no doubt. Also, in the beginning, going back to 90 minutes ago, where I probably should have mentioned this, but you know, yeah, my defense, enough. this is my first commentary on anything that doesn't involve men in tights, you know, acting like they're fighting each other. Um, um, I was hoping this was about men in tights. No, not men. manly men. Right, manly men. But in the beginning, uh, Professor Plums explained that he works for the United Nations Organization, mm-hmm. for the World Health Organization, which is a, you know, you know who. And I just thought that's not mentioned enough because I remember that's one joke I actually did get as a kid. I have no idea what made me figure that out, you know, but I I was and I thought maybe that was just in my head until like other people mentioned it through the years. I'm like, oh, that's pretty cool. Like that small things like that through this, you know, this movie is loaded with those stupid kind of puns that are actually Mm -hmm. delightful. (laughs) People look down on puns, but no, in in some of these cases, that workplay is. So, so nice. Right. I don't see. This is why I like this movie. It doesn't mind picking that low fruit. <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly. And here, here we have one of the best comedy improv you can look for. Just ever. Flames. <laughs> no <laughs> just one could ever write this. Right. <laughs> and their reactions are priceless. They're what probably a weird, weird thing to say for no reason. <laughs> In the cast interviews I've seen, like they just didn't know what was happening, so they probably had several cameras rolling at one time to capture their reactions. Mm. <laughs> I didn't do it. <laughs> He's just great and frantic. So this was oh, the only, um, I think this was the only celebrity interview I've given, where like it was really hard not just to completely fanboy out. Oh, I bet. You know, like, I mean, it was just a complete, it was so surreal. And like now to watch and be like, holy crap, because like, I'm always going to be a fan first. Like, I just Did you bring a copy into... of Pluto to sign? What's that? Did you bring a copy of the board game to sign? Uh, I didn't. It, it was a phone interview, unfortunately. Uh... I know. And she was so sweet. But like, I was just, I, I mean, I, I was a little kid again, you know, just nerding out. Like the last five minutes of the interview, to me, I was just interviewing Miss Scarlet. Which is so nerdy and unprofessional to say. But in my defense, I fell into journalism. I'm an author and speaker and whatever first. But, um, you know, it, it's, I, I really, she, um, I, I think feel everyone's like got one or cast. two of those where, you know, when you talk to somebody, you're like, oh, mm. man. Like, if I ever talked to Ron Perlman, I'd probably just be an idiot. I, mm. I, I wouldn't be able to handle it. Right. Well, luckily, I think I, I, I don't think other people picked up on that. It's just the struggle was real to stay in the journalist character, you know, yeah. like, OK, I'm not going to this whole thing can't be about Clue because you have a career that has surpassed that movie. But <laughs> let's talk about it. Yeah, this um, this entire cast, though, just unbelievable. I mean. The, the troop that this could have been. Could you imagine if the same cast just like kind of like the, you know, waiting for Guffman and a mighty wind have their whole troop. Like, could you imagine if this group became a troop and just did other God. movies? Oh. And Michael McKeon's part of that mighty wind troop. <laughs> oh, segue. Yeah. Uh, the world needed more of Madeline Kahn and Christopher Lloyd interacting. Oh my God. <laughs> yes. Why didn't they remake The Thin Man? <laughs> oh, quit making me sad. Quit pointing out things I want to see that I can't have. an amazing alternate universe that would be. 
Uh, just don't worry. We'll get to the point where there's CGI faces, and then we'll just do it that way. God, I want to see Christopher. Fake. I want to see Christopher Lloyd dry and drunk. <laughs> uh, and this movie really does like. I mean, like, look who who the you know the the, the <laughs> FBI guys that do from. Sorry, we just missed the best freeze frame in the history of cinema. <laughs> Greatest I'm go ending in cinema history. With my wife, smile, uh, turn the camera, the freeze frame. <laughs> 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 and then I, I miss I shouldn't say I miss actually a lot of people do very fancy credits these days with all sorts of interesting animations to keep people around mm-hmm. and let them know that hey there's probably an after credit scene mm-hmm. this one is simple enough but just seeing the clue cards with essentially promotional shots of the cast and crew is enough right. to kind of keep me interested mm-hmm. I always wanted these to be the clue cards after this how was that never made oh, right? never made that. Oh. like a movie cash in version of clue with these character cards Come on, it sells itself. Right, for sure. And I like how the FBI guy was the teacher from head of head of the class. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like this is such like as much as this is a time period, obviously in in 1959 or whatever, 57, like a, a time a period piece. It also does reflect the 80s a lot, just by who's in it, obviously. But like the other, like you know, Michael McKeon was known for Laverne and Shirley. Largely, you know, before his movie career really took off. And, um, you know, you got head of the class guy, which really deserves to have a name. And you would think I could just Google it, but I'm not going to. Ah, too much work. <laughs> right. He's just head of the class guy. But, you know, it, it's People cool just kind of seeing him pop in. Right. And the Go-Go's, like, I mean, just there's so much 80s nostalgia in this film. It's just so subtle. And, and it doesn't feel like 80s. And that's part of his charm for sure. I just noticed that the first credit went to officer number one as Will Nye, the police guy. (laughs) Nice. See, now it's really messing with people. They should unearth that fourth ending if they ever filmed it. I I don't know if they did or not. And stick this at the end credits of Clue. Just do the Marvel (laughs) Cinematic Universe. Just keep the endings coming. Here's how it really, really happened. I read that they did film it, and but that it was just not like it didn't. It had a completely opposite essence of everything. It was really dark. The movie, right? Really dark, like you know. A picture of it. Yeah, like, wasn't Wadsworth just like a psychopath who killed yeah, everyone for no he reason? Killed or everyone. Yeah, it was like he just you know he didn't share any murders. And the like dogs he ate him. Everyone. Right, and the dogs ate him. Like very Stephen King kind of esque, and <laughs> yeah. which I, which I, if you're gonna do a remake, that's what I would encourage them doing, which I know isn't the plan at all. But you, you know, go dark with it and remove some of the hokiness, and you know, keep some basic concepts. But I, I think I just think redoing this as a comedy would be a dis- disservice to everyone involved. I mean, you know, they, no they need. need to go so dark it becomes parody. Like they have a gritty subtitle, Clue, A Game of Death. And (laughs) it's back to casting Jason Statham as the butler. I I think it needs to be (laughs) as dark and violent as possible. Like Every time they open a door, there's another dismembered corpse. They just do that that reboot of the board game they did in the 2000s where everyone was like a tech billionaires and shit. Mm. There you go. Time. That was a uh, thing just, that happened, and we couldn't do a thing about it. They they just unveiled Millennial Mil- Mil- uh, 
Monopoly. That was a tongue twister. Millennial <laughs> really? Monopoly. Do it, buddy. I wow. did it. It only took two tries. Thank you very much. <laughs> Take another sip of that. I'm Pluto, on a podcast Cody. that's all about talking. Uh, <laughs> but if they if they ruined Monopoly that way, why not Clue? It's only a matter of time. Right. I I remember I got a VHS version of the Clue game. Oh yeah. And back when you know VHS games were the shit. Oh and, yeah. Uh, and I got a clue version. I remember just I could never get into it because the actors obviously weren't these actors and they were playing it straight. Like it was a legit mystery. And you would they'd show you a clip and I'm just like, I don't buy this random fat dude as Mr. Green. <laughs> like that's not Miss Scarlet. No way. You know, I don't that's remember. Colonel what, Mustard. Right. And it was just so bad. And this movie did such a stellar job. Like I, I just, I could never divorce this from anything else related to Clue. It's so weird to think that between that and the FMV games, there's like three actors who have played each of these characters professionally. Right, right. Not to mention the countless plays it's been turned into. Uh, the apparent musicals that have been thrown out there. Oh, God. I got to catch some of those. I'm really like, I'm such a giant dork when it comes to this film, but I really don't, I, I don't embrace the, the nerdum enough, you know, with anything. Like I've never gone to a star Wars convention. Like I don't do a comic cons and I, I don't know why I really need to embrace it more and start doing these things. Like why wouldn't I see clue the musical? Come on. It, and if you go to comic con, this could be the easiest cosplay ever. You just get yourself a tuxedo and bam, Wadsworth a Butler. Right. And just run everywhere. Just, <laughs> just have a hard time counting. Explain everything that's happening. Slap someone random and say, well, I had to stop her from screaming. <laughs> That'll be $20. One plus two plus one. Plus two plus one. <laughs> that can't be right. And then immediately Sweet. get yourself kicked out. <laughs> right. In record time. The tale of how Carter Lee was banned from Comic-Con in his first try. <laughs> Anyways, folks. Anyways, folks. That's hilarious. Movie's done. You can go home. You can't stay here. Well, you're probably watching this at home. You can't stay home. I I'm, Again, I'm not your dad. You can do what you want. <laughs> just just don't hurt anyone. That's it. Well, that's all no, right. remember, if, only you made Cody's, if you made Cody's drink and you've drunk it, get in your car. We say this every time. Get in your car. <laughs> Be underage. Drink it, be underage, get in a car, steal a car. You could you could be like that one police officer who ends up on the middle of a rock for no discernible reason. That could be you, <laughs> kids at home. You want to have an adventure? Hard cider? Who doesn't? Anyways, folks, if you want more of these bland adventures that don't involve drinking and driving, you can check us out at The Box Office Pulp on Twitter. We're on Blogspot. You can find us on iTunes. <laughs> the box office. <laughs> I know. I said, and I couldn't take it back. I'm like, I'm gonna roll with this and see if Mike doesn't laugh. <laughs> I just turned 90 years old. All right. I've got the box office pulp over my dash. We're on Stitcher. Find us on box office pulp. Uh, you can also find our guest host tonight, Carter Lee at thecarterlee.com. You can follow him on Twitter at thecarterlee. Again, he's on Inquisitor. He's on fan sides. Uh, why do I have such a hard time saying fan sided? Uh, 1428 Elm. <laughs> He's around. Go check him out as well. Thank you, folks, for joining us. Uh, don't murder anyone with any wrenches or guns or nooses or any miscellaneous other murder items from Clue. If you do, we're not responsible. That's our legal boilerplate legalese. Have a good night, and that's a wrap. 
You get more out of life when you go out to a movie. Please remember to replace the speaker on the post when you leave the theater. There's going to be so many wrench murders now, Mike. I hope you're happy. <laughs> Drunken wrench murders. Oh, as if any wrench murder is sober. Mm. <laughs> There's really not enough rope couple. murders. Yeah. They need to this bring like that the back. The one awkward murder in the film is where Yvette, you know, the noose is flung around Yvette's neck and they pull up on it like... That's fairly complicated, actually, to kill someone that way, unless they're yeah, just not struggling. Well, oh, what they didn't yeah, say right. was the uh, noose was actually covered in tiny, 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 tiny nails, which then uh, immediately pierced her neck. That, Thank that you, explains you all the gore and blood in that scene. <laughs> so I thought that was really some splatter for, for such a pleasant family-oriented movie, all of a sudden, to have all of that blood just soak the screen. It had to earn its NC-17. <laughs> right, right. This just, this just reminds me. Uh, a couple of years back, I went to California to the Los Angeles County Museum of Art, and their special exhibit was art from the Weimar Republic. You know, the the period of time between World War One and Two, and a repeated element in several of the paintings was something something called the Sex Fiend Murderer, which is a rough translation from the German. I'm sure it's much more terrifying in German. <laughs> and it was this newspaper story of a guy who'd break into houses and then murder women at night after raping them. And wow. there were several gigantic, horrifying pieces of art of just, like, beady black eyes hidden in the shadows underneath beds of, a, like, a guy holding a knife. So apparently that's all you need to do, just make terrifying art based on true crime and then let it sit for, like, 60 years and mellow, and then it'll just go right <laughs> to a museum. This is Box Office Pulp Guy, and this has been a Pulp Podcast production. Now please, 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 put a gun in my mouth and pull the trigger and say goodnight. And now, on with the show. There are a lot of issues that plague the comic book community at large that are really never kind of addressed. I think what the three of us really wanted to do was do a show where we explore all of that. And by the very hand of Odin himself, we now have <laughs> the seed of this podcast. Marvel's Odin. Does DC have an Odin? They must. I don't, th I don't think so. Let's go with, like, Image Odin. Look, look, DC has Hercules, so he has to have something. Who doesn't have Hercules? Spawn? He has Angela, who's, like, Lady Hercules. Yeah, she is kind of Hercules-like. Can we still yeah. legally say Spawn has Angela? Have I just gotten us in trouble? Well, now that she's as Guardian, I think it's it's fair play, so... Hey, she's not technically as Guardian. Yeah, but she's Asgard's assassin. And she has, like, a weird new haircut. Have you seen Angela's new redesign? Look, we can get all into the pathos of Angela on another episode. That was just a little taste of graphic novelism. <laughs>